Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The following story contains material that may be offensive and emotionally disturbing, and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. This is An Eye for a Killing, the true story of Scotland's most notorious serial killers, Burke and Hare. Episode 1 The Trial on Christmas Eve It's Christmas Eve, 1828. It's night. The High Court in Edinburgh is packed with people. The stink from the public benches is so strong the court ushers shove open the windows, despite the winter cold. The gawping crowds pull scarves over their heads in a vain attempt to keep warm. Silence in court! Silence! This is no ordinary murder trial. An old woman's body has been found stuffed in a box. All eyes on the short, stocky man in the dock. His name is William Burke. At his side, his co-accused Helen McDougall. Head down, she fidgets constantly. Burke puts his hand on her arm, reassuring her. Now, in the flickering light, they're waiting. Waiting for a witness. Waiting for his words. Waiting for the one man who knows what he saw. Because he was there. He was definitely there. Welcome to hell. My name is William Hare. I'm 21, yes. He looks older than that, the sharp-faced man in the witness box. William Hare has had a hard life. Burke and Hare. You might have heard their names. You might also have heard that they were 19th century grave robbers. They weren't. They didn't dig up a single body. They simply murdered for cash. 16 times. But only one of them ended up on trial. I swear by Almighty God, and as I shall answer to God at the great day of judgment, that I will speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. William Hare looks round all the faces. He seems unconcerned by what he's about to say and admit to. A warning. His evidence is graphic and brutal. It comes directly from the transcript of the trial. From nearly 200 years ago, William Hare speaks. Quietly, he begins. The woman was on the floor and William Burke got stride legs on top of her. In the dock, Burke glowers at Hare, who maintains a hundred-yard stare. She cried out a little and he kept in her breath. Did he lay himself down upon her? Scotland's chief law officer, the Lord Advocate Sir William Ray. Yes, He pressed down her head with his breast. He put one hand under her nose and the other under her chin. He stopped her breath. For how long? Ten or fifteen minutes. Did she appear dead then? She wasn't moving. You were in the room, William Hare. Tell the court what you were doing all the time this was happening. I was sitting in a chair. William Hare is not on trial. 
He will never be on trial, despite his complicity in not just one premeditated murder, but so many more. This trial, for the murder of Margaret Doherty, comes at the end of a ten-month killing spree that left 16 people dead. And all for money. This is a haunting story of murder on an industrial scale. It's dark, frightening, and plums the terrible depths of human behaviour. But there's also light and life and good people. There's a bright girl dancing. She hopes for a new beginning. I present to you me, the one and only Mary Patterson. There's a boy on the street with no shoes and a rain man mind. Wait now, wait now. Uh, oh, my brain's clicking. Click, it's coming, hold on. Click, January the 4th this year. It was a Friday, and May 6th. Can you hear it? Clickety, clickety. That was a Tuesday. That's two pennies, sir, thank you. Oh, he's right, he's got it. That's in my almanac. Am I right, sir? And I'm right up here, in my head. Remember my name. I'm Jamie Wilson. And there's Margaret Doherty, who told fortunes. God protect ye. God serve ye. Oh, your hand's cold. Here, let me hold it and warm it while I read your lines. See, this is your heart. Oh, there's happiness there for you. And this is your big line. Now, Alanya. Oh, I see your future clear. Maybe she could, but she never saw her own. In that, she was lucky. We are going to journey down into a world of sudden violent death, bodies in sacks and shiny blades wielded in high-ceilinged lecture theatres, where there's big money and no questions asked. A world of posh talk, good reputations and fancy Dan dressing. Vast houses with big gardens and low, filthy lodging rooms swarming with vermin. There's the class divide, corruption, disdain for the poor, mass immigration, and an acceptance that life is cheap when lived but profitable when you're dead. How did this come to happen in Edinburgh, this great city of the Enlightenment? Edinburgh, in 1828, was two distinct cities. The new town, with its broad streets and grand buildings, and the crowded old town, where the killers lived. The worst apartments in the lower parts of the city in the area around the grass market, was filled up with often the working poor, labourers, stonemasons, painters, and so forth. So the city had become very stratified, and visitors noticed it, that at night, contrary to what we might think, the wealthier parts of town, the new town and the southern suburbs, 
were dark because people stayed in their single-family houses and stayed in the living room and read novels, I suppose, whereas all of the tenements in the old town were lit very brightly because people had to work very late every night to earn their bread, and then they had to wake up very early the next morning before it was light. Professor Lisa Rosner, American academic and author of the wonderfully titled The Anatomy Murders, Being the True and Spectacular History of Edinburgh's Birkin Hare, and the man of science who abetted them in the commission of their most heinous crimes. We shouldn't assume that a poor area means a bad area, that, for instance, the West Port, where Burke and Hare lived, was a perfectly respectable area. There were shops, there were working people, there were churches, there were even booksellers and lending libraries. So it wasn't a sinister place, except, of course, for the people that came to live there. Edinburgh, a capital city and proud of it, but in parts, particularly the old town and the grass market area, not far removed in character from the countryside surrounding the city. So you would have hens running around the place, you had people keeping pigs, various other animals. It still was on the frontiers, so to speak, of a country with uh, ordinary life in Edinburgh having not just dogs getting under your feet or horses around the place, with all the results, of course, of defecation. But at the same time, you had these various farm animals and people making quite a bit of money out of them. There would be a a lively traffic in pubs and inns and things of that nature. Everything would tend to be clammed rather well together. Historian Owen Dudley Edwards, author of Burke and Hare, the first truly detailed account of their life and crimes. Within the grass market itself, therefore, you could have had plenty of carriages coming down this way and that way. Um, Some of the buildings there would be quite formal ones where people would go to dinner and so forth. And directly above the grass market would have been the lawn market, the way to the castle. And there were some houses, like, for instance, that of Deacon Brodie, whose front door would have been in what's now the lawn market, just down from the castle, and the back door would be several stories down, leading into the grass market. So you can see that is almost a metaphor for Edinburgh itself, that you had the poorer people and the richer people, the unemployed and lowly vagrants or casual workers, and above them people of very distinguished and possibly learned and certainly wealthy and high-living lives. In the name of God, police! Keep going. Eight weeks before William Hare's performance at the High Court, a man and a woman hurry through the streets of Edinburgh. It is the evening of Saturday the 1st of November, 1828. We know from the trial transcripts what happened that night and the following days. They present themselves at a police station in the Fountain Bridge area, a few hundred yards from the Westport. What they tell John Fisher, the criminal officer at the desk, sets in train a series of events that will engulf not only Edinburgh, but horrify Britain and the world, and change the law of the land forever. Uh, Superintendent John Fisher, criminal officer, Edinburgh. They told me that they'd uh, found the dead body of an old woman stuffed under a bed in a house in the Westport. I went with them to the building in Tanner's Close. (laughs) Dear God. 
I'm William Burke. Yes, I live here. Hey. I have reason to believe something untoward has happened in this house. Yes, yes. I'll ask the questions, Mr. Buck, and you will answer me. Nothing's happened here. There was singing and dancing. A gathering. A Kaylee. Will I spell that for ye? Yeah, Burke was a small man with a big mouth on him. He was insolent. He was cocky. I asked them what had become of the little woman who had been at his house the day before. Mrs. Doherty? She left about seven this morning. Who saw her go? Oh, loads of people. You wouldn't know them. Careful. That's my thanks. Get off them. What are you looking for? I'm looking for a body. What kind of body? Where have you moved it? You'll find nothing like that here. There was something, though. Blood marks on a bed sheet. On the way out, I asked Buck's woman how they came to be there. She said that a lodger had lain in the bed about a fortnight before and the sheets had not been washed since. I took her aside and asked her about the little woman, Margaret Dockerty, and she said, oh, she left at seven o'clock. Not in the morning, but the night before. That was enough. Because their stories didn't tally, I took the pair of them to the police office and locked them up. I returned to Burke's house, uh, where I found a striped bedgown and more blood on straw under the bed. A neighbour told me that she'd seen a porter helping Burke and his neighbour, William Hare, carry a tea chest out of Burke's earlier. I didn't sleep. I knew where I'd have to go in the morning. Surgeon Square. It's along here and down to the basement. Criminal Officer Fisher knows that in Edinburgh there is a rip-roaring trade in dead bodies. In the schools of anatomy, where students train to be surgeons, they need a constant supply of subjects for dissection. The name of one anatomist in particular stands out. The flamboyant Dr Robert Knox. The police would have known which doctors gave the best money. So it meant that you know that it's going to be Dr Robert Knox who will actually pay higher money than will slightly younger people in competition with him. So from the point of view of the police, um, Superintendent Fisher, it made very good sense to try Dr Knox first of all. It's one of Knox's assistants, David Patterson, who leads criminal officer Fisher to his gruesome discovery. This is us. Uh, hold my light, please. Is, is that the box? It is. Undo the ropes. Oh. And be careful. It's all evidence. They come here all the time with bodies. Yeah, I know. I'm just an assistant here. I've done nothing wrong. You take the lid off. Let me see. Lord God save us. She's stuffed in tight. Hey, let's let's get out. 
Can you give me a hand? Right, I've got her. Right, and lift. Okay, lay her up here on the table. Poor soul. There's no marks in her. Well, not that we can see. But then I'm not the expert. <laughs> Alexander Black, police surgeon, examines the body, overseen by criminal officer Fisher. What do you think? Well, there are no marks, no blemishes of any consequence, but here uh, there is some blood about her nose, look, and saliva here. Her face is swollen. Yes, I'm blackish. Her eyes have swelled up too. How did she die? Medically, I can't be certain, but personally, I think she died by violence. How? I think she's been suffocated. John Fisher has the body identified as the old woman who'd been in Burke's house. And suspicious of Burke's neighbour, William Hare, John Fisher detains him and his wife, Margaret. So now, William Burke and his partner, Helen McDougall, and William and Margaret Hare are in the cells at the police station, where another officer has pressing news for Fisher. The couple in cell one, Sergeant. Yes? Do you mind the woman who's been in shouting about a missing friend of hers? Well, the sweary woman? Yes, her. The couple in there, they're called Burke, aren't they? They yeah. are. The woman said when she last saw her friend that she was with a man called Burke. Find her now. And bring her in. They'll no see me, right? I'm no being seen. No, you're all right. They're in this cell. Okay, this is a simple thing. I'm not going in, I've told you. Just listen to me. They're in there, they can't see you. You don't have to go in. I'm going to lift the flap on the door here and you can peer through. I'll no be seen. You won't. They are bad bastards. You have my word. They won't see you but you will see them, and I want you to tell me if you met either of them that day with your missing friend. All right. You ready? Yes. Right. Up on your toes. Look through. You must be definite. It's him. Word spreads like wildfire in Edinburgh, and the word on the street that Sunday night is that two people are dead probably murdered. Margaret Doherty and Janet Brown's missing friend, Mary Patterson. And there could be more. Then a man turns up at the police station to tell John Fisher that he's seen a missing boy's trousers. What did you say? They were the daft lad Jamie Wilson's. I have had a long day, Mr Ireland. There's a boy wearing I'm investigating a murder and you are here about a pair of trousers. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, I am very busy. Just go home. The door is that way. Uh, Listen, Jamie Wilson's missing. I've seen his mum and sister looking for him. They're his trousers. What would I want with stolen trousers? I gave Jamie Wilson a pair of trousers. There's a hole sewed up in the knee. There's a man wearing them on the street and Jamie is missing. They're his trousers. Okay, what man? Constantine Burke. 
Constantine Burke is William Burke's brother. So John Fisher has one definite body and two more possibilities. How does he proceed? The answer is to be found in the National Records of Scotland. The detail is telling. It's a bright spring morning in Edinburgh. The sharp wind from the east catches you if you walk down from the old town towards the National Records Office at the east end of Princes Street. The city's elegant buildings rise above you, their clean lines clear against the cloudless blue sky. Although it's barely a mile from where William Burke and William Hare lived and murdered, it's a world away. I sit down at a computer terminal in one of the research rooms at the National Records of Scotland. I pull up a handwritten document dated the 3rd of November, 1828. It gives you the stark facts, but also tells you something troubling that may come to dog this whole story. In Scotland, the independent prosecutor is the procurator fiscal. John Fisher, having detained William Burke and the others for questioning, would go to the fiscal with what information he had. In turn, the fiscal would petition the sheriff for a warrant for Burke and any others to put them in prison for further questioning. Here we are. The petition is headlined, Murder. The word murder is underlined. It's showy writing. The words made by someone educated and confident. It shouts loud. Look at me, look at us, how sophisticated, clever, elegant and clean we are. It uses the language of Scots law. Edinburgh, 3rd of November, 1828. The day after the discovery of the woman in the box. Unto the humble sheriff of Edinburgh Shire, the petition humbly sheweth. There's a big fancy flourish of writing with these words, humbly sheweth, humbly shows. The H is huge and covers a fair bit of the page. The petition humbly showeth that on Friday, last 31st October, Mysey or Maggie McGonagall or Campbell or Duffy from Ireland... Her name is Maggie Doherty. The dead woman stuffed in a box and sold to the doctor. ...was seen in the house of William Burke, a shoemaker in Wester Portsborough. In good health, and on the following day, the body was seen lifeless under a bed in said house, and afterwards it was discovered that it had been sold to a lecturer in anatomy. From information received and circumstances discovered, it appears that the said William Burke, Helen MacDougall, who lives with him, William Hare, a labourer, and Margaret Laird, his wife, are guilty actors and art and part of the crime of murdering Mysey or Maggie McGonagate. Wait there. Say her name again. Mysie or Maggie McGonagate. I thought that's what it said. She's gone from McGonagall to McGonagate in a paragraph. Of course, having all these potential names is a minefield for anyone, and it could have been written in a hurry. But it is a legal document, and to me at least... It is telling that the words humbly sheweth are presented with such flourish and care. The names and titles of everyone are constant and correct, except that of the victim. She goes from McGonagall to McGonagate just like that. It's almost as if the person least considered in all this legal flourish is the victim. The old woman in a box. It's a theme that we will return to, but in the meantime... 
The sheriff gives the nod, and Burke and the others can be questioned further. The sheriff grants warrant of officers of court to apprehend and incarcerate in the jail of Edinburgh for further examination. We'll come to the questioning of William Burke, but first, a star. Not just any old star, but a superstar. Gentlemen, please, I know there is anticipation and excitement, but settle down now. Please, settle down. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. I give you Dr. Robert Knox. Gentlemen, it's good to see you all here this morning. In my head, a sharp mind. In my hand, a keen blade. Let us begin. Here we have a subject laid out before us. Edinburgh in 1828 is one of the leading centres of medical training and dissection in the Western world. To teach anatomy, you need bodies, cadavers on which to demonstrate and practice. Where do you get them? From the poor, unclaimed in hospital, from criminals legally executed, and from the resurrectionists, men whose job it is to dig up graves by night and sell the contents to the anatomists or as they'd call them, the doctors. Lisa Rosner. Edinburgh was a major centre for people studying medicine. Within Britain, the two cities that vied for being the major centres were London and Edinburgh. And they needed cadavers. And London always had the advantage for being a bigger city with bigger hospitals and more dying people. They had the advantage of proximity to the prison ships. So that Edinburgh had a marvelous medical educational establishment. But it didn't have the same facilities for bodies. Its hospitals were comparatively small and also extremely strict with what they did with their bodies. So there was always a constant demand of medical students wanting more opportunities for dissection and looking looking very hungrily around for any opportunities that presented themselves. But it was there's a constant demand for subjects for anatomy teaching in Edinburgh for the some five hundred students a year that poured into the city and, and even if you assume as was common, six students per cadaver. <laughs> it's still a lot of cadavers, and you needed new ones every single year. So there was an enormous demand. Students descend on Edinburgh from all over the world. But at the university, they find a drab and lazy professor of anatomy who owes his post to the fact that his father and grandfather held it before him. As a result, students seek out private teachers setting up their own anatomy schools to meet demand. Owen Dudley Edwards. You had distinguished creators of the study of medicine, Alexander Munro I and his son, Alexander Munro II. His son, Alexander Munro III, still allegedly using the grandfather's lecture notes and apparently agreed to have been a very, very bad lecturer, inevitably creating the situation where people went elsewhere to get the training so they could pass the exams and get the qualifications. So Robert Knox, who was known to be an extremely good lecturer, was the person to whom people would flock most of all. He had rivals who were younger than he was, again, 
people who are looking to get positions. It was complicated by the fact that there was not only tremendous competition, there was tremendously bad feeling. Yes, people were publishing uh, important papers in uh, The Lancet, that's the famous journal of medicine, but at the same time, they were improving these by making violent attacks on each other in the course of saying that excess experiments are no good. And uh, people, again, like Dr. Knox, their lectures were peppered with scurrilities at the expense of either the inadequacies of the professors at the University of Edinburgh or the foolishness of the young rivals who were trying to cut them out. The story of Monroe and Knox, the Dullard and the Star, will play a part in these harrowing events. We'll come back to them and their battle for supremacy. In truth, the clamour, the urgent need for subjects, an itinerant population, and the fact that cash was paid, no questions asked, meant a perfect storm arrived. They were the right conditions for someone new to enter the market and offer a brisk and reliable service, providing fresh bodies on a regular basis. Welcome, William Hare and William Burke. The two of them, and their woman, are interviewed in the police station not by criminal officer John Fisher, but by a bigger gun, Sheriff Substitute George Tate. He begins with Burke. Mr. Burke. I'm here to question you about the death of Margaret Doherty. I don't know much, but fire ahead. What you told Criminal Officer Fisher on Saturday about her leaving your house. It's not true. Is it not? No, it is not. How's that, then? I'll be clear with you. We have witnesses who tell us that the woman's body was taken in a box from your house to the doctors at Surgeon's Square. Ah, they're lying. They will swear to it in court. But they saw no mess up. William Burke, I believe you murdered her. Not true. You admit that the body was there in your house. You have witnesses? We do. And they will swear to the facts. It was there. Yes. Good. We have a start. What'll happen to me? It depends on what you tell me. I didn't kill her. How was her body there? Tell me what happened. It's a strange thing. I'm listening. The words are William Burke's. From the records, they echo down two centuries. Last Friday morning, I got up about seven and began my work mending shoes. That evening, about six o'clock, I was standing at the mouth of the close entry when a man came forward to me. He, he was dressed in a great coat. The cape was up about his face. He asked me where he could get a pair of shoes mended. I took him home with me and got his shoes off and gave him an old pair in the meantime. I was working away and he was walking about the room and he says, Oh, it's a quiet place. He said he had a box and asked if he could leave it there for a short time. I said, Yes. 
the man went out and returned with the box, which he laid down on the floor, near the bed. I was facing away from him, working at the shoes. I heard him unrope the box and then make a sound as, as if he was covering something with straw. Owen Dudley Edwards believes that Burke's story springs naturally from his upbringing and life experience. We do know about Burke, that he was an absolutely charming man, that he was a delight to listen to, that he could, as we would say in Ireland, charm the bees off the flowers. It would be the natural thing for him to do. He's asked, so to speak, what story do you have to tell? It's a curious thing in the Irish language. And the word skill, Willen Skelagoth, have you any story? Is a way from saying, what news do you have? So that news and story become the same thing. From that point of view, therefore, you have to think of him as the entertainer, but also, in a certain sense, somebody who was partly believing his own rhetoric, his own stories. It's utter nonsense, of course. A fanciful tale of a mysterious stranger in a long coat who could have stepped straight from a book of Celtic fairy stories. The man leaves a body under the bed, doesn't return, and he, Burke, is left to deal with the consequences. Burke must know it sounds like nonsense, but he carries on, making it up as he goes along. Burke thinks he holds all the cards. There's no evidence that he did anything apart from take a body to the doctor's. It's true. Sheriff Substitute George Tate doesn't know anything apart from the fact that a woman is dead and that's it. The circumstances might suggest otherwise, but there's no real evidence that Burke killed her. Are you done, Mr Burke? Yes, I am. I don't believe a word of it. You'll have to prove it then. The authorities have hit a brick wall. There are the four suspects. Burke, age 36, his partner or common-law wife Helen McDougall, the 21-year-old William Hare, and his wife Margaret, nicknamed Lucky. Despite questioning them, the authorities are stuck. There's no evidence of a murder. We do know that they could have been questioned separately, We suspect that they said very little. That would have been the smart thing to do. And again, there's no evidence that any of them were too dumb to know that. We do know that, again, faced with four people who, with lots of circumstantial evidence, that there were serious crimes going on, but no direct, conclusive evidence that could be brought to trial. The ordinary procedure would be, when confronted with a gang, that the prosecution would try to find someone who would peach on his friends or on the gang members. Can they find a Judas? It's in the old town near St Giles Cathedral that Sheriff Substitute Tate comes after weeks of questioning the four suspects. He meets Scotland's chief law officer, the Lord Advocate Sir William Ray. We are no further on, Sir William. And rumours are spreading about possible further killings. I have heard them. Are they true? No, I can't say. We know so little. 
What are Burke and Hare like? Burke's clever, has a silver tongue. He's the older by a good 15 years. William Hare seems slow to me. So we have the body of the woman Doherty. It's jammed in a box and taken to Surgeon's Square. We have the personal opinion of the police surgeon that she could have died by suffocation. And no witnesses to wrongdoing. No witnesses to a murder. You believe both of them were involved? I do. Come over. Look out there. All these people. That's where the rumours spread. It takes just a spark to inflame them. What they want is justice. The law doing its job. They want someone prosecuted and someone punished for murder. Otherwise, there could be rioting. We can't give them justice yet. Would either Burke or Hare turn King's evidence? We let one of them slip free for the sake of justice. That's a big risk. But worth it. I wouldn't trust Burke. He's sleek it. Clever. Make Hare an offer. He gets immunity if he confesses. Tell him Burke blames him for everything. If we get a conviction, justice will be served. And if we don't? Just give it your best. Now stay seated, Mr Hare. Well, well. Am I getting out? <laughs> it's not looking good. I've done nothing. So you say. Have you ever seen a hanging? Why? It can be a slow death. If they don't get it right, it can take an age for you to go. Pissing, choking, slavering, gasping on a rope while the mob bays at you. I'm not guilty. Well, I have bad news for you. That's not what Burke has been telling us. What's he said? A great deal. He implicates you. What's that mean? He says it was you and not him responsible. He got me into this. And you can get yourself out. Hi. I have a proposition for you. It's an offer. If you turn King's evidence... What's the King got to do with it? It's a legal term. If you admit to your part... I'm saying nothing. Hear me through, man. Listen very carefully, because your life depends on it. If you tell me what happened and admit your part, you will not face prosecution in court now or any time in the future. William Burke will stand trial. You're lying. You just want me to confess. I'm not. You have my solemn word and that of the Lord Advocate. Tell me everything and William Burke will stand trial and you will not. If you need time to think about it, I grant you that. We will need a full statement from you in detail about what happened. And I'll walk away. After the trial, you will be free to go. You have my word. All right. I'll tell you it all. In the next episode, Hare condemns his partner in crime from the dock 
and Burke begins to confess to the true extent of their horrific deeds. A total of 16 murders. An Eye for a Killing is a BBC Scotland production, written and dramatised by Colin MacDonald and presented by Jack Loudon. Featuring the voices of Gavin Mitchell, James Bowl, Robert Jack, Helen Mackay, Nicola Roy, Maureen Carr, Kyle Gardner, Ron Donaghy, Stuart Macquarie, Simon Donaldson. The producer is Bruce Young. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.